0: We're here today with Cliff Stearns, former Republican congressman from Florida's 6th Congressional District, in which he served in tw- for 24 years. Cliff is the executive director of APCO Worldwide's Washington, D.C. office and is the president of the United States Association of Former Members of Congress, which seeks to strengthen Congress, create avenues for bipartisanship, and connect those who have served with those who are currently serving. Cliff is the former chairman of the Transatlantic Dialogue for the European Union having been the primary liaison between the U.S. House of Representatives and the European Parliament, and he's a former owner of a small chain of motels and restaurants in north-central Florida. He's a former captain in the United States Air Force, a member of the Reformers Caucus at Issues 1, and was awarded a meritorious service ribbon in the United States Air Force. Cliff, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you doing?
1: Jordan, I'm fine, and thank you for taking the time.
0: Excellent. So the first question I'd like to pose to you is what are you currently doing or what have you ever done to advance the public interest and why?
1: Well, uh, obviously serving as a member of Congress advances the public service interest. And then I think um, a lot of my work since I left Congress, about five years now, uh, both uh, in the private sector and as well as the former members association, uh, members of Congress, where we try to really educate citizens in colleges and high schools and universities, as well as a lot of the corporations on uh, how Congress works, why it's important to be a, uh, a knowledgeable citizen so that you can help um, contribute to this country and make it better.
0: So you served for two and a half decades in Congress. Before that, uh, clearly, you had been in the Air Force. you have been successful as a business owner. Why did you leave your business and decide to run for Congress in the first place?
1: Well, I think for many people it might have been a strong motive or a dream. Uh, For me, it wasn't. Uh, It's just I was a community leader uh, in north central Florida in my hometown of Ocala, Florida, which is uh, just about an hour and a half north of Orlando. Um, And uh, I was on the board of the Chamber of Commerce. I was president of the uh, Marion County Motel and Restaurant Association. I was on the board of our uh, hospital And I was president of my Qantas club. So as an active uh, community leader, a lot of the business people came to me when the seat opened and said, Cliff, would you consider to run? And uh, after viewing it uh, for over a month or two, I finally decided to do so.
2: Hello and welcome to Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we have been interviewing politicians, activists, advocates, and others since 2016 with the intention of ennobling public service, creating a platform for positive civil discourse, and facilitating dialogue with difference. This show is the antidote for those who are tired of hearing about what's going wrong with the world. We showcase people just like you who are working to leave the world better than they found it. And that's good news. And now a word from former President John F. Kennedy with his views on public service.
1: Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country.
2: I'll remind you that this show is made possible by viewers like you. If you appreciate what we're doing here at Public Interest Podcast and enjoy this episode, please contribute $1 at publicinterestpodcast.com. And to express our gratitude, we offer a few freebies to our supporters. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show.
0: Now, uh, you actually flipped a Democratic district when that vacancy arose in 1988. Uh, It had been a Democratic district, of course, you're a Republican. Um, Did did that indicate... Uh, that the electorate had been shifting in their opinions, or to what might you attribute your initial success um, beating uh, a Democrat in a district that previously had been occupied by a Democrat?
1: Well, I think that's a very good question. I think anybody gets elected feels not only elated, but feels very grateful because lots of times your polls don't show you winning, and my poll showed me that I was losing. In fact, two weeks out, it was was, uh, over 10 or 15%. And I finally won by about 3%, and it was, as you say, Jordan, it was a 66% uh, Democrat district. It was set up so that the former Speaker of the Florida House, John Mills, could take the seat easily. He had no primary opposition. I had, uh, there were four of us, altogether five of us in the primary, and we went through a primary. And at that point, uh, Jordan, I lost, I came in second in the uh, initial uh, race, and uh, in Florida, the rules were you had to have a runoff, and then I won the runoff. So it was an arduous campaign, and I was grateful to win, and I can only say that I think in the end that I had much a higher profile, because I think the Speaker of the House felt that he was a shoe in and that he did not get out, and I was out there constantly. So I, I would say partly it's because I worked harder, and then obviously I think that um George H.W. Bush winning the presidency uh, has some coattails effect, too.
0: So uh, you mentioned, you alluded to a topic, uh, the topic of gerrymandering. Uh, You mentioned that the former uh, speaker of the Florida House of Delegates in Tallahassee had created a district that he thought was a shoe-in district for him, or at least for the Democrats. Uh, And, of course, you were able to overcome that uh, gerrymandering to beat him. Do you have any thoughts on gerrymandering in general uh, and and whether that's something that you support or oppose?
1: Well I oppose it and um, in this case it didn't work to the Democrats advantage but for the most part it does work particularly for incumbents if every 10 years you work the district such that you put all the Democrats in one congressional district and Republicans in the other then whoever wins in that congressional seat usually cannot be beaten because the votes are skewed towards him. And the only way you can beat him is perhaps in a primary, and the primary is getting to be sort of contested now because uh, the country in some parts is going very strong to the left and other parts are going strong to the right. But uh, I'm against gerrymandering, and I think it has made the balkanization of Congress, that is, it has made strong uh, partisanship, and i think as every american citizen should realize in 1776 without the great compromise behind closed doors without any press we would not have a constitution or a country today because that compromise uh without it uh, the uh, delegates were split and so i think i think members of congress have to compromise and you cannot be an ideologue and just go to congress and say i will not vote for anything except my views because in the end this great country is based upon a great compromise.
0: Are you referring to the uh, acceptance of slavery during the foundation of this country?
1: Well that was part of it. The the problem was at that point is the small states felt they'd be dominated by the big states. So you had the small states like Delaware and New Hampshire and then you had New York and Virginia and Pennsylvania, the large states. When you went to the Senate, uh, how do you uh, proportion the power? Well, part of the compromise uh, came from a delegate from uh, Connecticut, was, uh, Sheridan, was it basically will allow the small states to have two U.S. senators and the large states to have two U.S. senators. So New York and um, New Hampshire would have the same power in the Senate. That was part of the compromise. The other part of the compromise you mentioned is that the southern states felt that they had a huge population of African Americans and they wanted them counted as as citizens so that they could have more representatives in in the House of Del- House of Representatives and the compromise was to allow unfortunately as they're highly racial was to say African Americans were three-fifths of American mm-hmm. so that the southern states agreed to that northern states agreed and that allowed them to have uh, p- population uh, considered for the number of members of Congress from their state and the party also was a com- compromise was that the senate would be elected by the state legislature and not by the people uh, and that was changed with the 17th of the constitutional amendment and the other thing was to have members of the house every two years uh, and that would force them to go back to the people on a regular basis so those types of uh, compromise which were sorted out over a period of time uh, and at one point, uh, Benjamin Franklin thought the whole thing was going to collapse, and he asked everybody to pray because they just didn't know where to go and what to do. And so I think if you tell members of Congress that you cannot come to to the House or Senate and think it's going to be all your way, and even if you have a small clique of people that all agree with you, and maybe you're 30 or 40 people, you can persuade, you, you can change things in the House because if you all vote together, if the majority is, is very... Um, we say close for the Republicans and Democrats, those 30 or 40 people can change everything. But in the end, they're going to have to realize that even their own party is going to need their votes and they're going to have to compromise. And you don't see that a lot. And without that compromise, uh, nothing gets done. In fact, we can never pass a budget. And it's horrible that today they just voted uh, to pass a continuing resolution only for about three weeks and they back in September they passed it only for two-and-a-half months. So that means that they can't even agree to balance the budget, and every family in this country balances their budget, and, and most 45 states balance have a constitutional amendment to balance the budget. So it's so, really quite shocking.
0: On the topic of compromise and small coalitions in Congress, uh, I'd like to bring us to the conclusion of your career, and we can jump back. Into earlier, in, but at this moment in 2012, you were out primaried by a Tea Party Republican who ended up winning the seat. Um, and uh, this individual became part of the Tea Party revolution that swept into the House of Representatives, uh, played some role in leading to the ouster of Speaker John Boehner uh, and his replacement uh, by Paul Ryan and creating a coalition of, of a few dozen individuals of the Tea Party, uh, again, who uh, in many ways feel as though uh, slowing down government for them is progress and compromise is not acceptable. Uh, so it kind of ties in the, the uh, theme of gerrymandering and how primaries are becoming the, the real competitive race more than, than elections, but also tying in the theme of the extent to which compromise uh, is permissible in the current Congress. Can you speak about your experience being uh, out primaried with the Tea Party and the influence that it has had and that you've seen it have uh, in the Congress?
1: Yeah, I, um, under a reapportionment, uh, they took out my hometown from me so that I didn't have the support of uh, the 24 years of my hometown. I lost by 840 votes, uh, and there were four of us in the primary. And it's interesting, my poll at that point showed me 17 points ahead, so you can see sometimes you can't count on polls. But the bottom line is that the the person who won the seat and uh, took my place uh, immediately was against everything and anything and was a contributor to the shutdown of the government. And uh, it turns out that uh, he campaigned that uh, we should eliminate Obamacare, which I think most Republicans agree with but there was votes to eliminate portion of it, which he wouldn't vote for because uh, he wanted the complete uh, recension of Obamacare, and so you can't even get some of these Tea Party people to vote for a compromise where you get, let's say, 30%, and it comes back and gets another 30%. Uh, they're just too adamant, and, of course, uh, in the end, um, the Obamacare has, has sort of uh, collapsed because of the... Tax reform bill that uh, eliminated the mandate for Obamacare.
0: Mm-hmm. So, uh, so you see that there are implications to these small to, to this uh, balkanization of Congress, uh, leading to these this reliance on uh, continuing resolutions to to uh, perpetuate a budget for a matter of weeks instead of what was it when you uh, when you first entered Congress? How long would a budget? If a budget got passed, did it did it get did budgets get passed, and how long would that last for?
1: Well, the law is you have to pass a budget by October 1st of that year for the next fiscal year, and uh, until uh, the Democrats had, when I came in, about oh 70% majority, so they could pass anything they want. Uh, but again, uh, it wasn't until Gingrich took over as Speaker that we actually balanced, passed a balanced budget amendment. And frankly, under Clinton, we had surpluses for two or three years, and then they all evaporated. Uh, But to to go to your question is, there is so much partisanship today between the Democrats and Republicans, and the clique within the Democrats is the Progressive Party, and the clique within the the Republicans is the Freedom Caucus. And so getting all these people together is very difficult. So uh, embarrassingly enough, with a country this strong and powerful, we can't even balance the budget, and secondly, we can't even pass a budget on time, uh, notwithstanding the fact in the House, all 12 appropriations bills were passed, but they can't get these the Senate to pass any of them, so they had to do a continuing resolution. So the Senate has been a little bit more of a problem, because there's only 52 senators over there without John McCain voting, there's 51, and the long and short of it, they just can't pass anything there unless they get um, 51 Republicans to vote. Uh, together.
0: So I'd like to transition to your time uh, in the, in the Congress. Those two and a half decades that you spent there. Um, I mentioned one of your titles earlier. Uh, you were the uh, liaison between the House and the European Parliament. Uh, having come from Florida and worked uh, in, in telecoms, and you were at CBS, and uh, then and then working in the, in the restaurant and motel industry. I'm, i it's interesting that you found yourself uh, as the primary liaison uh, between uh, the, the, the European Parliament and the U.S. House of representatives. Can you speak about how you came into that role and, and what the nature of that relationship is today?
1: Sure. Uh, when I came to Congress, Henry Hyde was the chairman and the co-chair of the Transatlantic Dialogue. And what that is is they, the speaker appoints a chairperson to lead the United States uh, House, and uh... frankly the senate too because there's only one transatlantic dialogue that comes out of the house and henry Hyde asked me to join i joined so uh... Um, oh, the latter part of my career uh... speaker boehner appointed me the chair and what this means is that every year i would go over to the european and we would go to one of the european countries and meet with up to thirty members of the european parliament for about two and a half days in meetings to discuss the transatlantic dialogue issues, what we were passing, what they were passing, where we disagreed. And as you can imagine, there was a lot of disagreement, uh, particularly on certain issues, uh, you know, dealing with trade, dealing with cybersecurity, dealing with privacy, dealing even even with uh, items like uh, you're talking about armament and nuclear uh, control. And then they would come over the same year to us, and uh, so it would be – it'd be a very fruitful exercise and then at the end we would try to come up with a letter of what we agreed upon and that was difficult but then generally we did agree and as you know in the European Union they have so many parties and I mean they have it's a strong and Greece is a strong communist party um, and in Spain there's a strong socialist party uh, in Germany they have a Christian Democrat but it's it is sort of uh, fascinating yet at the same time uh, you have to realize that uh, even in a democracy when you have lots of parties sometimes it it's hard to co-lease uh, a group together and uh, we have a, a democracy a parliamentary system which is different than England as well as Canada as well as some some of the other countries where you know the, the prime minister can be gone in six months if, if uh, he runs into problem but but frankly, it was a very uh, uh, I would say enjoyable at the same time very serious uh, position to to um, leave the United States House over there in Europe.
0: And you mentioned some of your previous interest in the uh, founding fathers of the United States. And in fact, you've you've published books uh, on on American political history, uh, and and everyone and you would well know. Uh, that prior to the U.S. Constitution, we had the Articles of the Confederation, which right. had a very weak central government uh, and uh, ultimately led to a failed experiment that needed to be replaced with our current Constitution, which had a stronger central government. You see in the European Union right now uh, increasing fragmentation, uh, the vote in 2016 for Great Britain to Brexit, to leave the European Union. Could you reflect on any possible analogies that might be made between the United States' failed attempt uh, of creating a republic under the Articles of Confederation in the late 18th century and the current state of the European Union.
1: Well, the European Union uh, is a huge bureaucracy that's over all these uh, 28 countries, these sovereign countries. A lot of uh, very strong, uh, prestigious leaders argued for that coalition of the European Union so we could prevent another world war. But what has happened is the layer of the European Union bureaucracy on a sovereign country, for example, Spain or Greece or um, England or France or Germany, uh, creates another whole set of um, legislative issues. And I think that to have the United European Union to be equal to the United States of America is sometimes not working, because the United States is a very young country, uh, but when you go to some of these countries in Europe, they've been around for four or five, but Charlemagne goes back to the Roman times, back to 300 A.D. So the the, the problem is that there's too much ingrained history in each sovereign country, so breaking it up, making it all together into one Uh, strong, united European of of Europe, uh, I think it's not going to work as well as the United States because our states, individual states, are a lot different than the individual 28 countries. So the analogy is not quite perfect for the success of the European Union with the United States of America.
0: So it seems that the identity of being French uh, or the identity of being Dutch is much yeah. stronger than the 18th century identity being a Virginian or a Massachusetts man, even though we saw in the 1860s uh, that individuals such as Robert E. Lee found uh, that he had stronger allegiance to his state than he did to the nation.
1: And that's why he decided to <laughs> to, to side with his country, his, his state rather, and, and not his country.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, so um, moving on to other issues that you encountered in, in the uh, U.S. Congress, uh there were so many things you were known as a uh, consumer privacy advocate um you dealt with public health issues uh with the meningitis outbreak and uh the Cylindra uh incident uh with, with renewable energy where taxpayers lost 535 million dollars and cybersecurity telecommunications would you reflect upon some of the hallmark uh achievements or any interesting uh Experiences that you think would characterize your time in Congress.
1: Yeah, Jordan, um, we had anywhere from 1,000 to 1,200 votes a year. And I feel very proud that I had a consistent voting record. I talked about being a, uh, a conservative when I ran for Congress in 1988, and I now have a lifetime record with the American Conservative Union of 95%. And to put it into perspective, to have that kind of voting uh, Credibility and consistency with so many votes every year is difficult. Uh, and uh, so I'm proud of that. And uh, the second thing is that when I came to Congress, um, I was able to pass 86,000 86, acres uh, that the government owned to return to Florida uh, with Charlie Bennett, who was the Democrat congressman at the time. And that was part of the Cross Florida Barge Canal, which it was a Nixon administration a project to eventually um, bring a, a barge canal across from Jacksonville down to Cedar Key, and it collapsed because of environmental concerns. So it was a big, these 86,000 acres were returned to Florida, and they were in sort of an escrow in the government for many, many years. So I was proud of that, and then I passed the what's called the Millennium Health Care Bill for veterans, which uh, provided more funding and also brought in uh, opportunities for uh, more nurses and um, it was very helpful in uh, the veterans hospital, and then uh, last year in Congress, I passed a rare disease bill uh, to allow patients who could not uh, get waivers for medication from the FDA and had to go to Europe and spend forty or fifty thousand dollars. I was able to shorten the uh, the patient uh, the uh, rare disease um, shall we say trial period, and uh, for those people who really needed it, uh, the FDA had waivers. So. Those are just a few of the accomplishments, but I think the one you mentioned is interesting. Is that I was uh, chairman of the Oversight Investigation Committee, that John Dingell, who was uh, the longest-serving member of the House from Michigan, he used to be chairman of that. It's a powerful committee, and I had subpoena power, and I subpoenaed uh, the President Obama with uh, the Solyndra fiasco, where the taxpayers lost $535 million. And and you say $535 million in in a budget that's 1 is $4.5 you say, well, that's not a lot of money. But the principle of the Solyndra investigation was clear that the administration was pushing a uh, solar panel technology that was flawed, and they were subsidizing it, and ultimately taxpayers were were, uh, subordinated to hedge funds that were supporters of the president. And when it went into bankruptcies, these hedge funds came in and swooped it up and used all the tax loss. Trump to lender bankruptcy for their own businesses and the taxpayers got nothing so uh, but you know to have a, a a congressman having that kind of power to subpoena the president of the United States it took me eight months to get uh, my get the information and it wasn't it wasn't adequate and then I pushed John Boehner who was a speaker to do a contempt of Congress on the president and the executive branch and he wouldn't let me do it And that those types of things I think contributed to John Boehner Uh, not continuing to be speaker because a lot of us felt that uh, he should have been more proactive uh, if we had the facts on our side and we had the information and it was clear the taxpayers were being abused then I think we should make the executive branch uh, have to pay for it with a contempt of Congress and he wouldn't do it and so that was a disappointment so as you can see I had a broad um, uh, list of accomplishments at the same time I was quite active as the chairman uh, of a major subcommittee with a lot of power. Uh, you have, you know, any member who gets elected and gets to be chair of an oversight committee has huge subpoena power and, and, and the, the reservoir and funding of the U.S. government. So you have the power, but you have to also be careful because you can't overreach because the publicity will come back on you enormously, and it could uh, it could deny you even an election.
0: Now you mentioned uh, that you had a 95% lifetime voting record uh, with the conservative uh, I guess conservative voting record but earlier you spoke about the need for compromise and how uh, many members uh, who are currently being elected especially more extreme members like the progressive and freedom caucuses are not interested in compromising. I wonder how are you able to maintain that ideological purity at having a 95 percent lifetime conservative voting record but also uh, achieve compromise um, throughout the course of your time in Congress.
1: Well, with a 1,000 votes, not all of them are critical to to pushing the, the agenda. I mean, a lot of them would be for more government spending. would be uh, also to, to to create in this country uh, a huge amount of, of uh, federal programs. Uh, it would be attempts to eliminate and sunset some programs that I'd vote for. And so some of those did not require compromise, but only based upon what you believe in but there was a few that uh... i had to compromise on uh... for example the central trade agreement uh... A free trade agreement that president uh... george w bush wanted uh... uh... he i didn't want to vote for that because I, it was uh... bringing in colombia it was bringing in panama it was bringing in a lot of those countries that i felt that uh... with the infrastructure and the labor the labor rates weren't the same as the united states and, and i was a little concerned about free trade with a country that has no environmental standards and so I eventually voted for it, and uh, that was the type of compromise that occasionally uh, I would do. But uh, the 95% are usually based upon a philosophy of less government, uh, less taxes, and more freedom. And uh, those votes are, are, every year they up, come up, the Conservative Union comes up with maybe about 25 that they feel important. And so that's that's the case, Um And so sometimes you'd have to compromise, and I'm willing to compromise, but occasionally if it adds more and more bureaucracy uh, and less freedom, then I'm reluctant to do so.
0: So as we approach the end of this podcast, and having just reflected upon your conservative voting record, I'd like to ask you uh, a final two-part question. Um, So I'd like to ask you about your motivations and also your legacy, your motivations to serve in the Air Force, uh, to serve in the Congress, um, and your legacy, and perhaps we can ask uh, by including a little fun fact um, that uh, your great-great-grandpa was a member of Congress representing Ohio, Representative Bundy, in the 19th century. I'm wondering if um, you see yourself in any way as, as perpetuating his legacy uh, and to any extent if you, uh, how, how you view you may be able to influence future generations as he may or may not have ever influenced you.
1: Well, that's good, Jordan. Uh, Hezekiah Bundy from Ohio was a representative. I have some of his correspondence. I have a couple, uh, one of his letters framed. Uh, and my middle name is Bundy, so I was named after him. And uh, and I really didn't know it. In uh, fact, until I became a member of Congress, so my parents never indicated who I was named after. Um, but I think when you talk about legacy, uh, you're talking about uh, a feeling that. You, you had an opportunity to serve. My father served in the Imajima War. He was uh, in a naval officer. Uh, my grand, great-grandfather served in the Army. And my, my family all the way goes back to the Revolutionary War. They came here from England, from and they lived in Maine for many years. So I have a uh, history of serving in the military, and I knew from the day one I wanted to serve in the military. And I think serving in the military gives you a strong patriotic sense of this country. And towards that end, uh, the fact that I was a community leader trying to help out uh, as a volunteer uh, sort of goes to the heart of what I believe in, that public service is extremely important. And if, if you'll just allow me just a quote uh, on public service, because I think this interview, I want to leave the public with a strong impression that public life is a very high profession. Uh, there's a, um, a politician, English politician, historian, and he was the Governor General of Canada. His name was Lord Tweedmuir. And he had a famous statement where he said, Public life is regarded as the crown of a career, and to a young man or a woman, it is a worthiest ambition. Politics is still the greatest and most honorable adventure. And towards that end, I still feel that today, much as we see the uh, negative response to people asking, What do you think of your congressman? Uh, it is a noble, high profession, and uh, I think if you go back to Aristotle, you'll see it realized that ultimately the solutions in this in this world are going to be solved politically and uh, we need politicians of high character integrity who are willing to serve and really be much like george washington cincinnati who after they were very successful uh, they turned down cincinnati turned down being a dictator or an emperor of rome in uh, 456 bc and george washington after he won the revolution they wanted to make him king he resigned his commission, and after they made him president, after two terms he wanted to, he left. So I think public service has to be viewed as a temporary and not an aggregation of your self-improvement, self-power. And in the end, you should go back to your own community and be part of it as a regular citizen.
0: And that has been former Congressman Cliff Stearns, who represented uh, Florida for 24 years, the United States House Representatives, Um and that the president of the U.S. Association of Former Members of Congress and Executive Director at AFCO Worldwide, um, former captain in the Air Force who speaks about uh, his time uh, in public service as provided, providing him with an opportunity to serve in a noble high uh, profession that was, uh, in the words of a British uh, politician, the crown of his career. Uh, he views this time as a temporary uh, two-and-a-half-decade uh, installment in which he provided political solutions to some of the greatest challenges facing the United States. And through his work uh, facilitating dialogue with the Europeans uh, by advocating for taxpayers and for limiting uh, the size, scope, and expense incurred by the federal government in order to advance the cause of freedom, uh, Congressman Stearns, has, in this way, advanced the public interest. So, Cliff, I'd like to thank you for joining us today.
1: Jordan, thank you much. Can I just push my book, uh, Life in the Marble Palace, uh, uh, that uh, I just recently published, and it has a lot of the information we talked about in that, and it can be brought on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. Thank you so much, Cliff. Take care. Thank you.
2: This has been another episode of Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we interview politicians, activists, advocates, and others who seek to improve the state of the world. I'll remind you to subscribe on publicinterestpodcast.com, iTunes, or your favorite podcast listening platform. And please join the conversation by calling 240-630-0380 or emailing engage at publicinterestpodcast.com. Thanks for listening.